So Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right eye, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The, uh, the world thinks it has a monopoly on the topic of sex. I uh, don't know if you've seen any of these titles on the Skybox or on BBC. So you've got uh, The Affair and uh, Love Island. You've got Wanderlust that came out just a few months back on the BBC on a Saturday evening. Absolutely uh, sex-saturated series. If that's not alliteration for you, I don't know what is. Um, but if you are, have got 40 or 50 years under your belt, then 1977, you've got uh, this lady up here, uh, Deloy Boone, and she said these immortal words, it can't be right when it feels so, can't be wrong rather, when it feels so right. Now that just sums up brilliantly the uh, attitude in our culture, whatever the generation, to sex. Um, how can it be wrong when it feels so right? Nike, got it right as well, you know, if it feels good, just go ahead and do it. Uh, and so sex, if you're in the world, well, you've got the monopoly on sex, surely. And when it comes to the Bible, well, they're a bunch of prudes. What do the Christians know about sex? And they don't like talking about it. They either snigger or they ignore it completely. We're in the Sermon on the Mount and having looked at uh, one or two issues of what it looks like to live under the authority of King Jesus, that's in Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. If you've become a Christian, then this is the difference it's going to make in the world in which you live. If you've become a Christian, if you're under the authority of the king, then it affects every part of your life. And so, understandably, Jesus has looked at the issue of murder, anger, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago. Remember that from last week, if you were here? It's been said in the Bible, thou shalt not murder but the religious teachers of the law, they've considered it in such a narrow way, but I want to expand its application to anger. And we thought about the very challenging words last week. But now, verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, exactly the same phrase as verse 21, verse 33, verse 38, verse 43, these six issues that Jesus wants to unpack and apply the gospel to. Now it comes to the issue of adultery, which I'm going to broaden to sexuality, because I think that's what Jesus is talking about, the issue of sex and sexuality. Because the world thinks it's got the monopoly on sex, but just as a foundational first point, I want us to think about what the Bible says about sex and who the Bible was written by. The Bible describes quite clearly that sex, sex is a good gift. It's a good gift from God. When the Bible talks about sex, it's not flippant, and it's not prudish. It's neither of those two extremes. It doesn't snigger and it doesn't ignore the topic. It says a lot about sex because God invented it. Now there's a reason. So in Genesis chapter 1 it says, God made man. God made them male and female. He created them. 
And after each day, there's a little kind of rift that goes on in Genesis chapter 1 and into chapter 2 that says, and God saw all that he was made, that all that he had made, and it was good. It was great. After every day on which God made the world, he gives a little benediction. He gives a, a report. Ofsted come in, and God says, because he's Ofsted, this is what I've made, and it was great. It was good. He gives it the thumbs up. That's chapter 1. By the time you get to chapter 2, God brings into being, into life, and he gives Eve to Adam. And then the, uh, the style of writing changes, because when you talk about sex, more often than not, you want to use poetry. 99% of poetry is rubbish. But there is some poetry that's really good, and Adam's a pretty good poet. He says, at last, bone of my bones, enough of these animals. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He says in Hebrew, wow. He says, when I look at my wife and I look at who God has given to me, wow. That's the first two chapters of the Bible. The world's been created. Adam and Eve have been created. Humanity has been made. God says, this is what I've done. It looks great. And then Adam and Eve at the pinnacle of God's creation say, wow. They are unashamed. They're naked before each other. And they say, this is great. Or you could flip further, not Genesis 1, not Genesis 2. Why not turn to the Song of Songs? If you turn to the Song of Songs, probably it might get you hot under the collar. It's a love song. It's a celebration of sensual sexuality that God has given to man and to woman in a covenant relationship to enjoy. It is vivid. It is poetic. It's a, it's a man in parts, chapter 5, singing with joy over his wife. It's a wife singing back to her husband in chapter 7 and sharing her, her, um, her enjoyment of her husband, her enjoyment of sexual union with her friends as well, saying this is great, it's a good provision from God and it's right in the Bible. So let's not think that the world has a monopoly on sex because it doesn't. God made it and made the intended purpose for it and the intended context for it to be enjoyed. Because the world says, well, just follow your passions wherever they, they point. How can it be so wrong when it feels so right? If you feel like doing something, do it and do it to the max. If you follow your passions wherever you point, or wherever you're pointed to, you will always have a too low view of sex. You're not respecting the power of it. You think it's a small thing, it's a commodity. If it feels good, do it. If, on the other hand, you're kind of prudish, sex is dirty, who wants to do that, who wants to be engaged in sexual activity, if you think it's defiling, then you're not respecting the goodness of sex. It's a good gift from our maker, from God. Your view of sex is still too low. And to both of those extremes that deny the goodness and the power of sex, God says your view of sex is way too low. Sex is precious. Sex is good. Sex is great. But sex has a power that needs to be wrestled with. Don't squelch, don't ignore your sexual passions but neither should you follow them and be controlled by them. You need to channel them. That's what the Bible says in a really nuanced way. But we better get to Matthew 5. That's the foundation. We need to hear that. The world has got a monopoly on sex. No, it hasn't. The Bible is very clear on sex and says it's a good thing. But, as Jesus says, and the Bible says as a whole, sex, well, it's only for total commitment. Total commitment. That's what Jesus is talking about now in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through to 30. Sex is a good thing, sexual desire is a good thing to be enjoyed in the covenant relationship of marriage, 
But this passage tells us two things that's important to note. What is lust? It is not sexual desire. Because then that would be to say that something God has made is bad. And that's never true. Sex, sexual desire is a good thing, but sexual desire is not the same as lust. And let us understand what Jesus says. Jesus says two things. Lust is an impersonal desire, and lust is an over-desire, an inordinate desire. Two things that we want to look at. First of all, lust is an impersonal desire. Jesus says, verse 27, do not commit adultery. It's a direct quote from the Old Testament, from the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's a direct quote. And very simply, in a narrow sense, that means, the word adultery means sex outside of a covenant. That's a narrow sense. So if you're a married person here this morning, to have sex with someone outside of your covenant relationship, that's adultery. But inherent in that, we can broaden that, I think, to say it's also wrong, because the Bible says so, to have sex without a covenant. So if you're in a casual relationship and you have sex in that context, that's also, the Bible says that's wrong, you shouldn't be doing that. And it goes even further, it says if you have sex between two people in any other context, whether you're married or not, that's also wrong, because it's to be enjoyed in a covenant relationship. And so then Jesus begins to focus in, verse 27, you've heard it said by your religious teachers. This is what they were saying, this is what they were communicating. As long as if you're married, and if you don't cheat on your wife or your husband, then you've obeyed the totality of the sex, the sexual ethic. If you're married and you don't have an affair, then you're okay. That's the idea that the religious teachers were saying. And Jesus broadens it to say, I'm going to give you a wider, a more fuller, a broader, a more comprehensive understanding of what was wrapped up in that thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not commit uh, sex outside of marriage. I'm going to open this up. And he does that in verse 28. But I tell you, they say this, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman, and then he goes on. Now we need to say what is said here about applying to a man also applies to a woman. So as much as Jesus says anyone, any, any man who looks at a woman lustfully, we can equally flip that round to say any woman who looks at a man lustfully. It's just the same point. Adultery is wrong, not just because it says so in the Old Testament, because you need to understand the power of sex, says Jesus. One of my childhood memories was watching TV when we had four channels. You know, those the old days, it wasn't black and white, but we just had four channels. The decisions in family life was a lot easier. It was grandstand on Saturday and nothing else. But when we got onto Bullseye on a Sunday afternoon with Jim Bowen, stay out of the red and in the black, here's what you would have won, enjoy the speedboat, that kind of stuff. There were always the adverts. The adverts were the best thing about ITV in Channel 4, way before Channel 5. One of the uh, ones I remember was the Cadbury advert from the 70s into the 80s. But one of my favourite ones was one for a wallpaper paste, Solvite. And what they did to prove that the wallpaper paste was so strong was some really silly things that mustn't have been true. They got a man in a white boiler suit, they zipped it up and they said, Solvate is, is so strong. And they pasted this huge yellow board and they stuck him to it with his arms outstretched like a starfish. And then they attached the yellow board as the camera zoomed out to the underside of a helicopter. And then this poor guy, who supposedly is there just with wallpaper paste, is uh, being flown over Benidorm 
It looks somewhere in Spain. It's saying, Solvite, the only glue you ever need. They attached him also to the same yellow board and then they suspended him over uh, some water that had some crocodiles in it. Solvite, the only glue you ever need. They attached him to a windmill, probably the same guy. Um, attached him to the windmill and it went round and round as, round as well. Solvite, the only glue you'll ever need. When it comes to sex and understanding the goodness and power of sex, you need to understand the reason you don't mess around with sex, says Jesus, is because it's the strongest glue. It's the strongest glue, it's stronger than solvite. It joins together, not just two people, it joins together two people in a covenant relationship and it joins together their body, but it also joins together their soul. It's so strong, it's so powerful. Why is adultery wrong? Is it just like, don't step on the grass because God says so and I want to do it anyway? No because our maker knows what we need and what's best for us. And he says, if you take sex outside of the defined union, where it binds together someone's physicality, but also their soul as well, you're playing with fire. You don't know the power of sex. Don't treat it as a small thing. Don't treat it as an abstract thing that you can take out and do with it in a remote way. It's as if you bring fire into your lap. I mean, the world says, it's okay to have sex with as many people as you want to. It's a small thing. But actually, if you do that, if you have sex with whoever you want to, you're treating it in a very demeaning manner. You're saying, I want your body, but I don't want your soul. I want to enjoy you for a night or for a period of time, but actually, I don't want you to get too close to me. You're divorcing body and soul that are always kept together in the Bible. I will be vulnerable to you as much as it suits me and I don't want to do that tonight so I just enjoy you physically and sexually. The Bible says if you do that, if you just uh, want to be vulnerable to me but I want to keep my options open, you're just playing the field, that's kind of what the phrase means. But God made sex to unite someone physically but also someone in terms of their soul, emotionally. So it's not an abstract thing, not to be enjoyed without complete physical trust. No independency, it's interdependency, one to another. No keeping your options open. open. It's enjoying one another for life. No splitting body and soul. Sex is designed by God for one person to say to another, I belong completely and exclusively to you, to no one else. And so sex, when it's enjoyed in a covenant of marriage, in a Christian understanding, it's a, a sign of an invisible reality. Every time you have sex, one to another. And if you remove it from that context, it's like removing the stickiness. You're removing the covenant renewal that it symbolises. It becomes impersonal, and that's when it becomes lust. Lust is impersonal, you see. And Jesus says... Anyone who looks on a woman, verse 28, that's an impersonal, it's a gaze, it's, a, it's a, a fascination, it's a determination, it's motivated by a desire that's in the wrong place. And so lust is impersonal, but it's also an over-desire, it's an inordinate desire. It's the second thing that Jesus says about sex. In the original language, the, the word we meet here is a a word that we've seen a number of times, 62 times in the New Testament. It's called epithemeo. It means over-desire, 
strong, ruling desire. It's a desire that you can only get fully met in God. That's the point. And when you take anything, because you can lust after other things, but when you take lust uh, in terms of a sexual connotation, it's saying you desire through sex to get something that only God can give you. It's an idolatrous desire, it's an inordinate desire, it's an overpowering desire that sex will not satisfy. Only God can. And in verse 28, look at what your translation has. It says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. Literally, it says, anyone who looks in order to lust. And that's quite a big difference, sentence 28. Anyone who looks in order to lust. It's a small difference in translation that makes a big difference. It's saying, practically, you can't control the sexual desire for the first look but you can sure control whether you're looking intentionally, deliberately for a second, third, fourth, tenth look. That's the danger. There's nothing wrong with looking, hear me very carefully. But the Bible says, if you look in order to, that's where the danger comes. It's your sexual, God-given sexual passion and desire that's been misdirected and mislocated. When you're looking in order to, fascinate on someone who's not your husband or your wife. When you rewind in order to look again, that's in order to lust. It's inordinate, but it's also overpowering, says Jesus. It's looking connected to a motivation that's misplaced. You see, lust, lust makes you want pleasure and you'll do anything to get it. You'll go anywhere to get it. You'll wear anything to get it, you'll click on anything to get it. Lust, lust makes you want pleasure. But love makes you want a person. That's the difference. Lust is self-motivated. It's all about me and fulfilling my des desires and urges right now. And I'll do whatever it takes and I'll step on whoever I need to. But love, love is other-centered. Love is more concerned about giving pleasure to another. So let's apply this specifically to men for a moment. Lust men would want you to want and desire women in general. Anyone will do. Any image will do. Any bed will do. But love makes you satisfied with one particular woman. And there's a huge difference. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He says it's a very unfortunate thing to talk about a man on the prowl and say he wants a woman. He says that's not the best way to put it. The man wants pleasure, he wants a sexual thrill, and a woman is just a necessary piece of apparatus. He doesn't want a person, he wants fulfillment, says C.S. Lewis, and that is lust, an over-desire that's impersonal. And with a desire so strong that's God-given, but can be so readily and so often misplaced. Jesus says, well, how do, you, how do you cope with that? He says, you have to have such strong, spirit-empowered self-control. It's the third point. With such a strong force within our body, whether a male or female, Jesus says self-control is something you have to do, whether you're a teenage boy, a 20-something girl, or whether you've got a head full of grey hair. You still need self-control. Look at sentence 29 and 30. Pluck out your eye if necessary 
cut off your hand if necessary, throw them away, because it would be better to lose an eye or a hand than to have your whole soul and body thrown into hell. Jesus is now talking in the most vivid manner of maiming yourself, of removing parts of your body now so that it doesn't affect you eternally. Jesus is talking about heaven and hell. He says it's better to disfigure, to maim yourself, to remove a practice, a part of your body, rather than lose eternity with him. Because he's talking to Christians. It's the kind of image that you, uh, well, I turn away from if I see it on TV. If you see a Victorian doctor, one of those scenes, master and commander, and he's got one of those swords that you see in a DIY shop because there's gangrene in the leg and there's a problem. And so up comes the, the doctor and he starts soaring. At that point, I look and say, isn't the weather nice today, dear? Because I can't stand it. I know Hannah loves that kind of thing. But I can't stand it. When you have gangrene, if you get the terrible news that there's cancer that can be removed by an operation, you'll say, okay, do what it takes. I don't, please put me out but please remove it. And Jesus is saying, well, there's something equally, if not even more serious about lust. And it needs to be dealt with radically, quickly, severely. It can apply to books, places, contacts, contexts, magazines, websites. Let's be really practical. It can manifest itself or morph itself into any and many different situations because the human heart wants what it wants and it will do whatever it can to get it. But Jesus says, no, we're talking about something very serious into eternity. Don't trifle with something now that can and will affect your eternal future. So take it seriously. So there you are on the sofa last night. You're watching something and uh, there's no one next to you and, and there's just a small fire that starts on the uh, second cushion. You're on one, the fire's on the second one. Now, do you look at it and think, well, thank goodness I didn't think there, sit there tonight. Or, thank goodness my spouse isn't there. Thank goodness my friend isn't there. Or do you immediately think, wow, where is the fire extinguisher? Where's the bucket of water? I need to put the fire out. Sin is that close to us sexually. It's so convenient. It's on your mobile phone. You can take it wherever you want and you can have access and you cannot be accountable to anyone. You cannot be seen by anyone and no one will ever know, or so you think, what you see or where you go online. Jesus says sin is serious. Don't you understand that misuse sex is even more dangerous than you can ever imagine? You need self-control and the Holy Spirit is the only place where you'll find it. Sex is not something you can mess around with. Sex is something that you need to take very seriously. That's what the hand is about. That's what the eye is referred to. Well, how do you do that? Well, let's get even more practical. Three guidelines as we close. If sex is really a great thing that God has given to us, let's not forget that. If sex is to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage, so adultery is no, because sex is such a strong glue, it's not to be messed around with. It's there to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife in a committed union for life. Then how do we deal in a world that is sex-obsessed? Here's a couple of things. First of all, 
Make a distinction between the thought and the fantasy. Make a distinction between the thought and the fantasy. There's nothing like a, a sermon on sex to make someone feel guilty. So I won't look at anyone for a moment. Sex can make you feel completely depressed and oppressed at the same time. It can make you feel so guilty about your past, just in the past week, where you've been, what you've done. You can feel dirty. And you have to recognise this distinction, I think. You can't stop thoughts from occurring. But you can stop what happens next. Will you allow the thought to fester? Will you put it on the tongue of your soul and just digest it and ruminate on that look or that conversation or that image that you've seen on the front cover of a newspaper, just walking by? Didn't mean to see it, you saw it. And it's what happens next that you can control. It's the fantasizing, it's the, the thought of what may, might happen or what may be, if there was a second or a third look, or if I gave my phone number to that person, then what could happen? Martin Luther, you've got to love the guy. Martin Luther said this, you can't stop birds from flying around your head, but you can stop them from making nests in your hair. Whether you've got hair or not, please stick with the image. You can just imagine, you can't stop the thoughts because God has made us as sexual people. But what you can do is you can control the fantasy. Will you just fester on what you've thought or seen? Will you rewind or not? Will you go to that place where you know he is, where you know she will be, or will you not? Distinguish the difference between a thought and a fantasy. Something that's very helpful. Here's the second thing. The only way you will ever deal with and make progress as a Christian in this area of sexual desire and the difference between love and lust is if you give it completely to God. There's an old story about a king who went out on his horseback to uh, meet his subjects at different villages and the rumour on the street was that he was a magical king and a generous king. There was a beggar who sat by the road one day and all he had in front of him was uh, a bowl with some rice in it. And he was expecting the king to come and just to put some money uh, in his hand. But instead, as the king stopped by the beggar, he said, what will you give me? And so the beggar gave him a few pieces of rice. Thank you, said the king, and he went on. When the beggar looked down into his bowl, he found three nuggets of gold. And he thought, if I'd given him the whole bowl, would have been a wealthy man. Friends, if you give God part of your life, but not the whole, you will never ever make steps with this issue of the difference between love and lust. Someone who's reborn, someone who's become a Christian, someone who experiences some of the characteristics of Matthew 5, 3 to 12, someone who lives under the authority of the king, that includes your sexuality. Let's not divorce that. I don't even like speaking in that way. We are a human being and part of that is we're emotional, part of that is we have uh, sexual desires. We've got to give all of our lives under the authority of the king. And that means sexuality as well. Give it to God and he will renew it. Give it to God and he will give you, by his Spirit, little victories of self-control as you are more ravished by him than anything else or anyone else or anywhere else. But here's the third thing. Don't feel guilty about your sexual past. Don't feel guilty about your sexual past. What do I mean? It is the topic to preach on if you want to make people feel guilty. It can be manipulated in a very easy way. 
But friends, just reflect back to Matthew chapter 1, how the gospel began with the genealogy of King Jesus. Look at uh, a few of the characters that we referred to when we looked at it. Look at uh, Tamar and look at Rahab. These two very interesting ladies from the Old Testament. Jesus goes out of his way and Matthew, as he writes it, goes out of his way to include these two women in the uh, family lineage of King Jesus. And he says, God is proud of those people. Now, who were they? Well, there was Rahab, who was a prostitute. There was Tamar, who was guilty of incest. And these two ladies are right back in the middle of the family tree of Jesus, who God sings over and says, I am proud of those women. I love to take people with the most messed up lives, and that includes sexual mistakes, sexual sins, sexual tragedies, sexual pasts, and I love to transform those people by my grace. Think of Mary Magdalene, another one of Jesus' inner circle. She had a lot of previous when it came to her sexuality, and yet Jesus drew her to himself in the inner circle of his extended family. Friends, if you have got mistakes in the past, if you've got regrets in the past, if you've got search history in the past, until you recognize that God loves to redeem people who are broken in every single sense of that word, people who are sin-stained in every single sense of that word as well, you're never too far from God's grace and you'll never make progress in the understanding of sexual self-control unless you see God is a God of grace. You've got to say, I refuse to look at my sin outside of the cross. I refuse to look at my sexual past outside of the cross because I'm forgiven at the cross. And the gospel says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've viewed, no matter where you've been. Those are the principles. Identify the difference between a thought and festering on it, the fantasy. Give your sexual desires to God and he will renew and redeem them. Don't stay haunted with guilt from your sexual past. And friends, the only way you can deal with this whole topic is this. The only way to deal healthily with sex is to go to God with it and be more ravished by the love of Jesus by anything or anyone else. Don't let sex become an idol. Don't let uh, the desire to be in a relationship because you want to have sex become such a dominant over an epi desire that it crushes you. Jesus is our king. The Bible describes him as our lover. He's our redeemer. He's our God. And he can be our closest friend. Let's pray.